right. Well, once again, welcome to our second event in the spring, vaccine mandates and religious exemptions. Um, so before we get started, I'm going to make a couple announcements, introduce our speakers, and then just kind of let them go at it. Uh, so first, if you haven't signed in, please sign in. Uh, it's the only way you can get food afterward. After the event, the food will be out in the, uh, the common eating area or designated, whatever they call it these days. Um, and then you can take as much as you would like, please, because I, I, I have to take the rest of it. So <laughs> I can only eat so much pizza. <laughs> but um, so and thank you all for coming. Um, so let's uh, let's get this uh, show on the road. So our two speakers today are Mr. Eric Treen. He is a former uh Special Counsel for Religious Discrimination at the United States Department of Justice. He is currently a uh, is adjunct or, or full-time professor. Adjunct professor at uh, Catholic University uh, Columbus School of Law. Um, he uh, was the former uh, litigation director at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty in D.C., and he is a graduate of Amherst College and Harvard Law School. Our other speaker is our very own Professor Larry Backer. Uh, he currently teaches courses on corporate social responsibility, corporations, multinational enterprises, and constitutional law of religion, which I have taken and which I highly recommend. Um, let's see. In 2006, Professor <laughs> in 2006, Professor Backer founded the Coalition for Peace and Ethics, an independent nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt research and information-focused organization based in Washington, D.C., and he serves on the board of numerous journals and has a blog page that I'm sure he will promote at some point today to, uh, to get more information and uh, articles from him. Uh, Professor Backer was educated at Columbia University School of Law. Uh, Harvard University, JFK School of Government, and Brand, Brandeis, Brandeis University uh, for his undergrad. All right, so I have to make two quick announcements before we start. Uh, first, you know, uh, COVID-19 is still going on, so by being here, you assume any risks and all that good stuff uh, by, by being here. So thank you for being here, but you do assume the risk. You have been, you have therefore been warned. Um, secondly, we're going to say our Federalist Society, some might even call it the Federalist Society's invocation. Uh, the Federalist Society is a nonpartisan, conservative and libertarian organization dedicated to freedom, federalism, and judicial restraint. The Federalist Society seeks to educate the legal community through its programs and publications about how limited constitutional government based on the rule of law can have a positive effect on law and public policy. So thank you all for coming once again, and I'll take my seat and speakers, you may begin. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, Professor Backer and I decided that the best way to, to do this was we're going to go through kind of breaking the subject into to sort of four pieces and go back and forth through each of those four pieces. The first being, you know, what is a religious claim and how do you test the sincerity of religious claims? Uh, second, uh, what does the free exercise clause have to say about, about this issue? Third, what does RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the federal law, uh, sort of restoring the old uh, pre-Smith free exercise rule, what does it have to say about these issues? And then finally, what does Title VII have to say about this for, for, for private employers? Um, so just to start it off, um, I'm, I'm very glad you're, you're all here, that you're not uh, COVID fatigued like most of the country in so many ways. And I, I think it's, it's worth focusing on this for a few reasons. One is, is the vaccine exemption issue isn't going to go away. We're going to probably have annual uh, COVID vaccines, uh, may expand to, to flu vaccines, right? Uh, uh, but second, uh, the issues the Supreme Court's grappling with on this are really moving the ball on free exercise, and it's largely doing it through what we call the shadow docket 
So it's not the normal, you go through the courts, you go to the court of appeals, you petition for certiorari, you get, you, know, you get the golden ring, one of the 90 cases a year, you get 50 amicus briefs coming in and, and hundreds of pages of, of, of record that the court goes through carefully. But what's going on is the court's getting these cases you know, up through the system. Uh, we call it the shadow docket. Uh, it's sort of a disparaging term. Uh, I, I think they're, in one sense, uh, I agree it should be disparaging because there's something nice about having all that information before the court when the court only takes 90 cases a year. It used to take like a free exercise case every five years. So it was really important to get it right. Now it's taking like three free exercise cases a year. Uh, but there is something to be said for, for them really chewing on the record, getting it right. You know, so many cases you see, they, they find things in the record that, that really didn't percolate up through the district and, and court of appeals. So that's very valuable. On the other hand, though, we don't want to be too disparaging of the shadow docket because, after all, we're in a system of law where the courts, as much as, as they're viewed as sort of creating law of the Supreme Court, we're a system of government in which we have cases and controversies that go to the court. And these are cases and controversies. We're very familiar with district courts and trial courts, you know, chewing on these, making decisions, making precedent on, a, on the fly with, with preliminary injunctions and so forth. Uh, not so much with the Supreme Court. And, you know, so, so there's, yes, these are real cases. And so we should, you know, divine from these real principles. But on the other hand, they're done on the quick. So, uh, it's worth paying attention and uh, you know, uh, looking more carefully. Uh, so, so the first issue in these cases is, is, you know, is it a religious claim? And when I was at DOJ, the first thing I noticed when we, it wasn't vaccines, because we didn't have a vaccine at the time, but we had uh, mask mandates all over the place, right? And we started to get at DOJ hundreds of these petitions from people saying their religious liberty was being violated by being required to wear a mask and you start looking at it and why? And they say, well, the government has no business telling me what to do. It's like, that sounds like more of an autonomy argument. Sometimes you'd see arguments like, well, we're made in the image of God. We should be able to let our, our, our face shine forth. It all seemed kind of uh, a way of dressing up an autonomy argument. And because when it got down to it, it was really kind of a Griswold versus Connecticut argument, right? It's like, there's certain things that are the government sphere and certain things that are the personal sphere and the government shouldn't intrude or we should be careful about the government intruding in these areas. Uh, a lot of people said, well, no, it's, it's, there's a government sphere and there's a religious sphere. It's like, well, is this the religious sphere or is it something broader than that? Because you know, we, we we're very careful with our establishment clause and our free exercise clause of having a notion that religion is special. There, we don't want the government intruding on religion through the establishment clause, that there is a sphere that's personal and religious in a unique way. And the same thing with the free exercise clause. But is this question religious? Uh, you get to uh, the vaccines and it's the same thing. You know, the first wave was people just saying the government has no business, this is untested. Uh, this, you know, it, it starts to look more like autonomy. So you have to be really careful. What is the argument you're putting forth? Now, there certainly are religious arguments being put forth out there. The the most prominent being the uh, stem cell argument. So saying that, that uh, the J&J uh, &J vaccine derived from stem cells that may have been from aborted fetuses, they're not sure. Uh, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine was tested with stem cells. Uh, but 
you, you need to be careful with that for a few reasons. One is the many Catholics have, have adopted this position. The Catholic Church has said this is actually not a problem. I, one of my things I, I teach at Catholic law school as well as the Catholic uh, the School of Graduate uh, Canon Law at Catholic University. And my canon law students are very strident saying, no, no, this, this church says it's not. So if you're Catholic, part of what you believe in is the authority of the church. And the church says it's fine. So you're not allowed to go off and have your, your Protestant-like conscience-based uh, uh, claim that this is, this is uh, a, a sin. But you know, in, in our system, we look at sincerity from the point of the individual. Uh, cases like the, the Jehovah's Witness who didn't want to build tank turrets, uh, and was fired, even though other Jehovah's Witnesses would build tank turrets. And we said, no, you can be a religion of one, you know, if it's sincere. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, how do you test sincerity? Uh, one of, with, with the stem cells, there are many, many people very sincere about this. Some employers have been challenging it, saying, ah, if you're sincere, then you, about the vaccine, then you also won't eat take aspirin, Tylenol, Advil, Pepto-Bismol, and a whole range of other medicines that have been tested with uh, stem cells. So when I heard that, it didn't, didn't ring true, and I looked into it a little deeper, because aspirin's been around since the mid-1800s, uh, you know, Pepto-Bismol since 1900, and Advil was around before stem cells, because I, I remember taking it back then, way back when. And, and in fact, what, what it is, is there's certain applications of aspirin, certain applications of Pepto-Bismol, that subsequently have been tested using stem cells. But that doesn't really solve the problem. You have employers, we'll get to Title VII, we'll talk about that. You're making people sign that they do not take Pepto-Bismol aspirin. That doesn't really, really answer the question because you, know, you, you may be taking a drug for a purpose like headache that's been used for 100 years, may have been tested for a heart disease application in the last 10 years using stem cells, but the fact that you're taking aspirin and objecting to the vaccine doesn't really answer the question. So the stem cell argument is, is one that is familiar, the idea of objecting to something because uh, you don't want to uh, involve yourself with, with something like, uh, that you find uh, religiously reprehensible. The more difficult cases we're seeing is, is claims like, well, I go... Uh, I've, I've prayed about it. I, I've looked at the science. I, I'm, I'm undetermined, but so I went in, went in prayer. I read scripture. I went in prayer, and the guidance I I'm feeling from God is I should not take this vaccine. That's something we're seeing a lot in a lot of the uh, uh, Navy SEALs cases that you may be hearing about. The issue there, though, is it may be sincere, but it's essentially limitless. And one thing I think we need to think about is. Why do we have religious exemptions uh, that are stronger than general conscience objections? There are a lot of people who are, who you know, conscience, their conscience is telling them to do a certain thing I'm against war, so I'm not going to pay taxes. No, you, you still got to pay your taxes. There are certain things that, that we say religion is special. We want to protect because we understand that people who are religiously compelled to do something or to not to do something have a unique pressure on them. Like not, if you're, if you're Orthodox Jews, do not work on the Sabbath. There's something special about the Sabbath. There are many Christians do not do work on the Sabbath. Uh, things that, I mean, on the one side, it, it may be just as sincere for someone to go and say, well, God is calling me to uh, pray, to stay home and pray for Ukraine today. Yes, but as a society, is that, you know, are there, uh, 
it, does that result in chaos? Does that result in society eroding its support for religious exemption, exemption. recognizing, okay, I, I understand this person uh, consistently uh, observes the Sabbath, or maybe they didn't observe the Sabbath and they've, they, they are observing it now. That's something we can honor. It's something unique. But if you have somebody who says, well, I'm going to stay home today and fast, I'm going to do this, you know, just whatever they want to do, it may be sincere, but it, there may reach a point when we say, is it something that as a society, uh, we can hold, you know, give a special exemption for that we're not giving to people who uh, may have strong secular reasons for uh, wanting, uh, you know, a day off or some special exemption from from the law. So, all of these things are mixed up with the um, vaccine. We'll get into it a little more when we talk about free exercise, RIFRA, and Title Seven. But I just wanted to lay that on the table. Then turn it over to Professor Back. I'm just loving this because I'm sitting here and there's just a couple of thoughts going through my head. I'll start with that, give you a little detail and then we can, we can do a little exchange. So I'm, I'm gonna make this very brief. Um, I start off with, with the following, be very careful what you wish for. Uh, and what, when you wish for the uh, absolute obliteration of Everson's rule of the separation of uh, the wall of separation. And when you wish for flipping the primacy of free exercise over establishment. And when you wish for a basis for the interaction of government with religion that is based on strict neutrality, right? And those are the words you use, then be very prepared for the consequences because the consequences aren't to get you back to a happier version of what you wish the world had looked like in 1920. It is the reality of what you are going to get in 2021 with a demographically extraordinarily more diverse population and a population that as much as it has found itself freeing itself from the tyranny of government, is also finding itself more and more willing to free itself from the tyranny of the institutions of religion, from magisteriums that they believe are, her are heretical, from institutional constraints that they believe do not reflect the divine, but represent the worst of humanity in terms of corralling a relationship with the divinity and on and on and on in a context in which even the nature of religion, because again, it's not 1920 and the entire universe of religion was not given birth somewhere between Mecca and Jerusalem, but is now all over, sourced all over the place, including its conceptions. That is the world that into which the doctrines that have been developed certainly since the 1980s, when the, the war on Everson and the war on the, privacy, on the primacy of establishment over free exercise, and then after the 1990s, when one freed up um, the, uh, the free exercise provision itself by effectively not overturning, but end running um, uh, employment division versus Smith. That's the world in which we live in, and that's the world that you've described. And then the second thing I thought of was, Someone, wherever he may be right now, is just laughing himself silly. And that would be Justice Scalia. Uh, because if you take the last two paragraphs, which were horribly mocked, mocked, 
the last two paragraphs of that of, of his opinion, right, where he warned precisely what you spent the last five minutes of your talk worrying about. That is exactly what necessarily comes to pass, not because of changes in the constitutional doctrine, which is what makes this delicious, but in the way in which the court ducks the constitutional issue by placing all of that discussion within the statutory interpretation context of RIFRA and its, um, and its progeny. And so what we wind up having, and you see this in the vaccine cases as well, no one is arguing constitutional law anymore. Everyone is saying, well, the constitution effectively speaks the way I did in these broad terms, but we're not there. We're really now talking about the application of congressional mandates right, in these cases. And in that sense, what winds up happening when we talk about mandates, when we talk about free exercise, we're not in the world of the constitution, we're in the world of statutes and statutory interpretation. The two vaccine cases in January were not law and religion cases, they were quite, they were uh, incredibly important administrative law cases. And they follow a number of administrative law cases from the Trump administration in which the courts increasingly seek to limit the authority of administrative units in the, in the broad interpretation of the, of the scope of their administrative discretion. From that perspective, you could have taken religion out and the cases still would have gone in the same way. Um, the politics of it and religion comes in and adds flavor, but these are administrative law cases first and foremost. RIFRA and the other cases are cases of statutory interpretation. Now, having said that, of course, we know that all of these are pregnant with constitutional issues and the things that the court refuses or can't take on at the constitutional level, which has been frozen in the uh, Smith-Babaluaye case with, with some modifications in, in the context of, of uh, neutrality in participation in, in uh, the guy at the government trough, that has remained relatively frozen where all of the action has been is in the context of statutory interpretation in the and, and it's showing up now quite nicely in the vaccine cases. Right. And so that will take me to a, a couple of last little points and then then we can we can discuss the first beyond the administrative uh, law case, uh, the administrative law angle is one wonders after 30 or 40 years. And Americans have this extraordinary taste for this, which I find increasingly distasteful. Uh, and that is to legalize our political discussions about the fundamental nature of what we do through the theater of extraordinarily well-curated cases which are proffered to the court. You talk about them as case or controversy. I kept hearing quotation marks around the words case or controversy, because in this, what we are really doing is engaging in politics through legal form and something that we've all liked. And there are a number of really good reasons for doing that. We don't have civil wars. Uh, we don't have the, the kind of violence that you see, and we, we've figured out a way of kind of managing this. But at the same time, one can then understand why it, if you're moving from people's theater right, to full-fledged grand opera of four hours, right, you wind up seeing precisely what you suggested, which is rather than having a docket of 140 to 170 cases a year, you've got 90 and they can barely hang on to that. And if you've got a set of dockets where 
you're engaging in the legalization of fundamental political discourse only within 90 cases, that's also got to seep out. And so in effect, the shadow docket becomes the place where things really work because the quote unquote real docket just becomes incredibly, insanely ineffective. Um, and, and so what winds up happening is you've got multiple theaters going on in the context of which you're consuming the issues, the, the, the critically important issues of law, religion, societal welfare, and the like, which require discussions. But the theater with the, the formalized structure within which this is done makes that virtually impossible at a, at a political level. With respect to what is religion, and, and as I've, I've mentioned before, welcome to 2022, where there are at least, I don't know how many organized institutionalized religion. And for every one of that, you're going to have for every 100 people in one of these churches, you're going to have 200 variations, uh, uh, three quarters of which would be viewed as heresy by someone else. But given our jurisprudence, that doesn't matter, does it? And on the other hand, that's good. There's an old tradition about this. Uh, think about um, uh, poor Mr. Smith in Missouri, who would have been a heretic, right, uh, in what ultimately becomes LDS, right? The idea in this country that one can start with a religion of one, and indeed, if you go back to the Abrahamic traditions, it is a religion of one that starts with a either a placement of or a choosing of a vocalization and then it spreads, that runs deep in the religious discursive tropes of this country. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. If we have that though, you're gonna to have to live with its consequence because if you don't, then you're gonna butt up against the neutrality principles. If we accept the fact that in fact, you can have a religion of one that one day may become a religion of 50 million, right? Or it may remain a religion of one and that someone's heresy is someone else's truth, right? And that is the basis for free exercise. Then the extent to which you impose on that person some sort of test of sincerity becomes a very easy way of then knocking down or at the door of the neutrality principle among religions and uh, if you're of that persuasion between religions and the secular on which free exercise jurisprudence has been built over the last 15 years. And if that's the case, then what we really should be talking about perhaps is not sincerity, but burdens of proof, right? It ought not to be the burden of the holder of beliefs to prove his or her sincerity. It perhaps ought to be a very high level burden on the state to suggest that it is not sincere, but you can't do it in a way that either mocks or denigrates the faith. And you certainly can't do it by saying, well, you purport to be a Catholic, uh, the, the Holy Office says X, you're saying Y, and therefore you're either a heretical Catholic and we're gonna send you off to Rome. Oh, we don't do that anymore. Um, we <laughs> We're going to we're going to discipline you somehow or or ignore you. Right. Or not treat your beliefs as sincere. Right. The problem that this person has is going to be within the community of believers, but not with the state with respect to the sincerity of his belief. And then that produces a conundrum to which I don't have an answer because 
at its limit, the answer has to be, unless I, you can show, uh, and, and we're gonna have to err on the side of, of false positives, unless, or false negatives, I forget which is why I'm not a doctor. Uh, unless you can show the letter that says, ha, 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 I really don't wanna work on Saturday, so I'm going to go ahead and lie about this, or the, there is actually a series of a famous case in Northwest Arkansas uh, where people wanted to smoke uh, the marijuana, and then they there were a series of correspondences that basically said, "Well, how can we uh, get the sheriff off our back? I know we'll, we'll claim to be a religion." In the absence of that kind of evidence, you're going to have to take the word of the person, right? The sincere word of the person, and we already see this to some extent in disability law. Uh, where you're dealing with people who are who are disabled, uh, and then you wind up having to run around and catch them actually um, not doing or doing what, what what they're doing. So that creates and and all of this, of course, in in terms of what we said, really sets up the difficulty of the issue when sincere believing um, military people, and in this case, I think they were um, they're elite. Um, military folks um, come and say, look, I've had a personal conversation with uh, the divine and he, she, or it has told me X. Uh, and you may think I'm insane, but you know that's my sincere belief. Now what happens? Uh, testing the sincerity of the belief, I think is a, is, is a dangerous road to go down given the nature of the edifice that we've created jurisprudentially. And I think a sound one, neutrality has a lot going for it, even though the, the price we paid was uh, the, the destruction of the wall of separation, which was never either very high or, or very thick to begin with. Um, but if you fail to maintain that, I think you're gonna pay an enormous uh, price. So um, nature of the claim, as Justice Scalia would have said, you broke this thing, you own it, and you know, welcome to the China shop because this is this is what you got. And if you don't like it, you're not going to like the alternative any better. In fact, you're going to hate it. Yeah, I mean, just to, to build on what you said about Justice Scalia, uh, you know, the temptation if you're somebody who who supports the idea of religious people being able to to practice their faith even when it when it can may conflict. With, with with government uh, mandates and such, uh, you know. So the first impulse is, well, let's carve out exemptions. But the other thing is, is let's control the mandate, right? Let's be sure that we only have mandates on things when we really need to have mandates. And that's essentially what we saw in January: the court striking down the the employer uh, uh, you know, mandate uh, for large employers. To, it's an sort of a general federalist view of, look, smaller government's better, let's leave this to the locals. The locals are more accountable and, and can react more nimbly, at least hypothetically, it doesn't work when legislatures meet like you know two months a year, but anyway, that they're closer to the people, will have less burdens on people. So they, have, they, they said, we're gonna uphold the, the uh, medical mandate on, on, on medical personnel, that that's closely tied to the statute, but that the, 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 the uh, uh, employer mandate was looked like it was an overreach. And then there's a, the Fifth Circuit just struck down the contractor mandate, the idea that federal, the, the federal contracting law uh, didn't have enough 
power in it to go that far. So that might be a way to look at it. And then you get out of the sincerity issue. You get out of the what's religious versus what's secular. Because again, a lot of the arguments are about spheres and the government ex- exceeding its its sphere. Uh, and so that's that's one way out. Well, no, that's that's. I think that's exactly right. And indeed, uh, one of the most interesting things of the two January cases was it appears that no one uh, in the Biden administration had read the uh, census case, uh, where Justice Roberts was very clear about the nature of administrative decision making. He laid out that, uh, and I really like that case. So it was just wonderfully clear setup. And then they went ahead. And they did exactly what they spent four years criticizing the Trump administration for doing, which is, oh, my God, I've got a problem. Uh, Congress is too slow. Uh, we've got um, some uh, new version of the uh, despicables who are really uh, bugging me. And I know we'll go ahead and use our executive authority uh, and paper it up nicely. For four years, that was like marrying Satan. And now all of a sudden it's 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 something else. And and that's the problem. And so here I think that it's important to think about religion and the religious issues as intimately tied to the issue of the nature, scope, and exercise of governmental authority, when, where, how. Uh, and I certainly have been very, very nervous and increasingly nervous about the this, the scope of discretion with which we had we have vested this enormous administrative apparatus over which Congress, to the extent it has any sort of control, I mean, ultimately really doesn't. Uh, and and I won't go into my my qualms about passing nine hundred or a thousand page pieces of statutes uh, in three or four weeks everyone claiming to have read it uh, carefully, um, many of which then spin out these enormous uh, delegations of authority, not just, and here's where it gets compounded, not just to the administrative apparatus, but as we're seeing in a lot of areas, especially, for example, I do a lot of work in the area of, uh, of corporate responsibility and corporate human rights, by delegating that authority out of the public sector, into the private sector itself. And in a sense, that was the last thing I'm gonna say. One of the reasons I, you know, from my perspective, I would be very nervous about uh, the OSHA ruling was you, this continues the process, not just of delegating and expanding the, the power of a federal administrative body, but of then using that authority to redelegate this down to the private sector, which is now responsible on the basis of these emerging quasi-administrative, not legislative, but quasi-administrative doctrines of the delegation through compliance and accountability mechanisms of the actual implementary authority and mechanics to the private sector. Now you're in a crazy world uh, in which the lines of responsibility are not only mixed up, but the ability of the popular will to monitor this itself is now attenuated, not just from Congress to the administrative agencies, but now from the administrative agencies to the private sector as well. Uh, And when you're dealing in an area as sensitive as religion, the caution bell should be going off uh, in doing things like this. Did you want to start with free exercise? Yeah. Oh, or, or I can go either way. Yeah, no, go ahead. I like the, the, okay. the way we've done this. <laughs> yeah, so, so turning to the free exercise. Uh, as you know, if, you, if you've studied Smith, right, 
generally applicable neutral laws, you don't get to strict scrutiny. So if there's a dry county, you may want wine for communion, but you, you can't have it. The law applies to everybody, end of story. It's different if it's not generally applicable or if it's not neutral. If it's not neutral, if it, if it has makes a value judgment against religion, either based on animus or, or some kind of disregard, or if it's just not generally applicable, if it applies to a lot of people. This, this came up in the shadow docket very clearly in the uh, uh, gathering restrictions, you know, the six foot separation, the 25 limit on, on churches and so forth, the most extreme being San Francisco, which allowed one parishioner at a time, even in the, the cathedral. And they ended up, uh, at DOJ, we actually sent them a letter threatening to sue them and they, they backed down from, from, from that. But there were some other, you know, six foot separation and singing restrictions, you know, singing, there was evidence that a choir was a super spreader. And so, you know, a lot of, of, of situations, but, but what we were finding was governments were very wary of giving up economic activity, but but quick to give up religious activity. So Las Vegas, right? You could, you could go into a casino and sit next to people as long as you're six feet apart, but they could have 50% capacity, but a church was limited at 50, regardless of size. So a, a, sort of a sense of, well, we can't make people lose their jobs. You know, we can't you know, disrupt all activity here, uh, but we can disrupt the, the church. And there the court initially, it was a 5-4 saying, well, Movie theaters and churches are treated the same. So the fact that casinos are different, we're not, you know, we're not going to worry about that then. Uh, Justice Barrett came on the court, everything flipped, and you had the New York decision, the Brooklyn case, where the court really kind of went out saying, well, if it's, you know, if you're going to allow people to, uh, to go to a liquor store or a laundromat or, you know, a manufacturer and be in within, you know, as long as there's six foot separation, you have to allow six foot separation at a church, even if movie theaters and restaurants are, are, are disfavored relative to the retail stores, the laundromats and so forth. I mean, there's a certain appeal to it in the sense that there are value judgments like, well, laundromats, you gotta have laundromats open, right? Um, if you're a religious person though, you may say, you know what, I'll wash things out in the sink, but let me go to church. And so there is a value judgment there. Um, so it's, it's, it raises a very difficult issue and it, it really elevated the neutrality principle and it was sort of the neutrality on steroids. It's like, we will look for any way in which like a manufacturer looks like a church. It used to be, well, movie theater and churches, they kind of look the same people sitting for an hour at a time. We'll, we'll treat them the same, but, but that's not the same as a, as a grocery store where people are coming and going. And things. So the, the court really looked more, more strictly at, at those restrictions. In the vaccine situation, it gets kind of tricky because you know what are the uh, what's what's the secular exemption? It's typically medical, right? So typically, it's it's like in New York State, they said if you're if you're a doctor or a nurse, you have to uh, get vaccinated. You can be exempted if you have a medical contraindication. Uh, but you, religious exemptions, we're not going to to uh, allow. And, and there's sort of two ways to look at it. Both are well, you could say well. Both are exemptions, right? The idea is you don't want people out there transmitting a disease. They're going to transmit it just as much if they have a medical contraindication as if they have a religious reason not to get vaccinated. But if you step back and say, well, no, the, the, the purpose of the law is to, to promote health, right? And you promote health through vaccination, through not making people get vaccines when they are, uh, when it would, would make them ill, 
if you look at that as a sort of broadly health, then they aren't really equal. It is generally applicable because one deals with health, you're giving an exemption because of health, and you're making having vaccines required because of health, and the other is a religious exemption, which cuts against the government interest. So there are really two ways of looking at it. If you're looking at strictly in terms of transmission, yes, but if you're looking in terms of, well, we want our medical staff to be healthy enough to continue working, well, if that's the case, then they continue working if they're vaccinated and aren't getting it, or they continue working if they are not vaccinated, but yet are not having a, a severe adverse reaction and they're ready, able to show up for work. Uh, there's, there's a case that Justice Alito uh, authored back when he was a, on the Third Circuit, uh, FOP v. Nork, Federal Police v. Nork. I was actually, I was just, I was just, oh my God, all right. I was just thinking, as you were talking, I was saying, oh my yes. God, I'm going to have to mention this. No, case, that's my case. Right. And he made an interesting observation. There it was uh, Muslim police officers wanted to wear beards. They had an exemption for uh, men who had pseudofolliculi barbie, which is a, a skin condition a lot of African-American men get, which can make it either painful or even impossible to shave, depending on the severity. And so they gave him an exemption for, for pseudofolliculi barbie, but not for religious reasons. And he said, you know, the, both of those reasons cut against the government interest. The government interest is we want to have a, a uniform appearing police officer. Well, the, the people with medical reasons go against that. The people with religious reasons go against that. Therefore, you're not treating religion equally with, with this medical reason. But there was also an exemption in the law saying, well, undercover op uh, officers can wear beards. Right? And the court said, well, that's different because the undercover officers are also furthering the interest of the government here, which is to have an effective police force. Some people through being clean shaven, some people by looking like criminals and, and blending in. And so, so the undercover exception doesn't cut against the government interest the way the medical and the religious do. And so really with the vaccine mandates, it comes down to how are you looking at the medical exemption? Does it cut against the government interest in getting everybody vaccinated? Or does it support the interest of the government in promoting uh, general? The last thing I'll say before I turn it over to you is, is in one way, we think you know, it might be tempting to say medical versus religious. Well, obviously, medical, you can't, if you have a medical exemption, you can't get the vaccine because you'll be hurt. Whereas religious, oh, you know, just, just go get the vaccine. But if we're going to take religion seriously, that it's, you know, you, it is somebody being forced to work on the Sabbath or making a Muslim eat pork, or if it's that level of things, then we say, no, you're really putting people to a false choice. You cannot make them do that, just like you cannot make a a person with a medical reason do that. I'm saying that just to emphasize that we make religious exemptions, we really have that in mind, that kind of severe infringement on people. And so maybe it's not the same infringement in my mind to somebody who says, you know, I've looked at the science and I prayed about it. And I just don't think this is where I should, I should be getting this vaccine. Um, that is not of that, of that force of the person being you know, a nurse forced to participate in an abortion against her conscience or, or someone being forced to eat pork uh, and, and, so, and so forth. So it's a lot there, but I'm gonna hand it over to you. All right, I've got I've relatively little to add, although I, I still, even after all these years, I still have a bone to pick with Alito in that case because I don't buy the, uh, the distinction between the undercover uh, and in regular work. The, the, same rules, the same rules apply, because I can say, why are you making me wear a beard? 
Uh, not all, you know, if I'm supposed to be, uh, I don't know, a pimp or some other disreputable person. Uh, does a disreputable person always wear a beard? You must be able to accommodate me, you know, somehow. So that that itself was a weakness in the opinion, which could have been used. It could have cut either way. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, he was going in a particular direction, but but I'll... <laughs> You just never let go of these <laughs> things in these cases. You just, but but I will. All right. So I'm 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 done with that. You you raise a number of, of interesting points, and I, I just want to underline uh, a couple of them. Uh, the first is I'm going to save a lot of what I'm going to say for the the next uh, section, which is on RIFRA, because again, a lot of the exemption cases are to some extent statutory cases rather than constitutional cases. But at the same time, and this is a point I made in, in class, you'll remember, uh, even though technically uh, we have since uh, the, uh, the, the decision in uh, Gonzalez versus Ocentro made a point or the justices have made a point of saying, well, look, we're not touching the constitutional doctrine of free exercise and establishment. We are only touching on the statutory accommodation within RIFRA. So this is statutory, not constitutional. It's become very clear over the last 10 or 15 years that whatever they're doing under the moniker of statute is actually what they're doing in the constitutional realm, even though they still maintain that fig leaf between, or the wall of separation between, and now I'm using that ironically, between the statutory construction of free exercise and establishment under these, these broad or sometimes narrow statutory um, rulings and the constitutional doctrine, which technically has remained unchanged for the most part, except again, with, with respect to neutrality in an area that isn't directly COVID related, uh, um, remain the same since the, the big two, the Church of the Lukumi Babaloaye and, um, and Smith, right? And in that case, right, what, what winds up happening here in free exercise is that we go subterranean. We accept the fact that uh, statutes of, generally, of general, applicabil general applicability uh, broadly stated in the constitutional realm, slightly more narrowly uh, framed in the statutory realm, uh, are untouchable. It's too bad uh, you've got to lump it. But then in the statutory realm, uh, not only have we broadened the scope of people who can bring an action by going from you know, religion to personal religion, uh, and it's not clear whether um, it, it's, it's debatable whether that applies only in the statutory context, or you can then shift it back as the, the children of the uh, the old 70s cases, the Watson and the Gillette cases, uh, into the constitutional realm remains undecided, although my gut tells me that, that it will. Um, now, beyond that, the issue then becomes, what do we mean by general applicability? And therefore, what do we mean by exemptions and uh, the severity of infringement and the like. Uh, the, the court has been very clear that what RIFRA did was not reimpose uh, the old Sherbert uh, line of cases. And they were very smart to do that because if all RIFRA did was to reimpose Sherbert's free exercise doctrine, then virtually outside of the, uh, the unemployment compensation and tax area, uh, the state always wins. 
but that's not what they wanted. And so again, they make this distinction between the constitutional framing of free exercise and establishment and the statutory free exercise by saying, well, look, the constitution may not require this, but uh, the, the constitution permits the Congress to accommodate and by accommodating, expanding the free exercise part as against establishment and off to the races we go without touching the constitutional limitations, which are broader, um, but, but looking at it from the, the perspective of RIFRA. And in that case, um, you can still ask, well, if that's the case, does Sherbert still apply at the constitutional level if we, uh, if we eliminate RIFRA? And we know that the answer is no, because they're gonna figure out a way of, of transposing it. But technically, um, if we got rid of RIFRA, the old rules still apply and all of that jurisprudence would have to reattach as a constitutional rather than as a statutory interpretation matter. And it's not clear that all of them would. Well, it wasn't clear that all of them would as of four years ago. It's clear that a lot of them would, but in a very different way now. Um, so you, you worry about that. Uh, and in that context, again, you have to be careful. Severity uh, tended to be uh, in favor of the state. And I remember I, I wrote this down because I keep forgetting the, the case name, uh, which always drove me crazy, the Goldman versus Weinberger case. This brings us back to uh, the military and free exercise. Goldman versus Weinberger made it very clear. And there we're not dealing with invasion of the body. We're not dealing with any of the stuff that's being brought up now. This was a case of a rabbi who wanted to wear what rabbis have been wearing forever, which is a head covering, right? And the military at the time said, no, we want uniformity. And the court went out of its way to say, yeah, we've got Sherbert, we've got all these cases, but no, you lose because we value the military's discretion with respect to uniformity over this thing that doesn't go to the heart of whether you are still practicing Judaism or not, although that was debatable, not for the court, right? That case still stands, not within RIFRA, but within the constitutional jurisprudence of the case. And so here, what the, the, the avenue that going back to, bringing this back to the, the vaccine mandates, if this case had been brought up, the vaccine mandates had been brought up uh, before RIFRA, before 1990, whatever, two or three, uh, and you applied Sherbert, it's not clear that the case would have even reached the court. The answer would have been no, you'd cite Goldman and you're done. Even if you don't bother citing the 1907 uh, inoculation case, right? You'd be done. With RIFRA, right? We're now looking at something very different, which is what you were suggesting. But technically, as a matter of statutory construction, in reality, probably as a matter of a gloss through statutes on a changing constitutional uh, set of norms. But we haven't officially gotten there. Uh, on the other hand, RIFRA is not going away anytime soon, I don't imagine. Uh, and, and so there we are. And so that's that's the only thing I'll add. And then we can we can just do this and then move yeah, on. Yeah, let me wrap RIFRA. up yeah, yeah. The, the constitutional argument and then uh, and RIFRA and so maybe we can get to questions. So RIFRA, uh, takes away the, the problem of, is it a generally applicable law? You know, how do we get to strict scrutiny? You show sincerity and burden, clearly something invading your body, if it's sincere, it's a burden on you, right? So boom, you get to strict scrutiny. 
Uh, problem is we're in the Navy, right? It's Navy SEALs. I have a friend who's a Navy SEAL. And he goes, gosh, we go on missions and they just say, roll up your arm. You say, what is this? I don't know, but you're supposed to get it. So, okay, you know, typhoid, whatever, you know, we're going somewhere where we're going to be, need to be protected. Uh, but, you know, so it gets to strict scrutiny. Courts, Fifth Circuit especially, been, been uh, and, and as court in Florida have been striking down the mandate, saying 99% of people in the Navy are vaccinated. You've got 5,000 objectors and a couple hundred, 400 Navy SEALs are objecting. That's not going to, you know, create, uh, you know, destroy herd immunity. And so, uh, uh, you know, you lose government. Uh, Supreme Court uh, ordered... The um, response yesterday, uh, the government a week ago filed a brief saying, look, we're, we're, we're the military. We've got, you know, it's got to be a really compelling interest to tell us what, what readiness is within the military with our soldiers and sailors. Uh, and they ordered by yesterday for the uh, Navy SEALs lawyers to, to respond. And so any day now we could get a shadow docket uh, hearing on that. Um, yeah, Title VII, I'll just throw out, that's, you know, it's on, it's public, private employers, right, so, so Constitution and RIFRA don't apply, but you have Title VII. Title VII, though, is a pretty weak standard. You have to make a reasonable accommodation, unless it would be an undue hardship on the employer. An undue hardship, I don't know if you've studied the ADA at all, uh, or Disabilities Act, but that's a real standard. Like, if you're an employer, you've got to, you know, spend $10,000 getting the right computer for somebody, or $5,000 maybe, uh, but if you're, if it's stuck to the religious, it's the same terms. Is it an undue hardship on you? Well, you know, if you have to spend more than a few hundred dollars, you know, to, for overtime for somebody to cover for you, sorry, undue hardship, religious person loses. So probably you really shouldn't win under Title VII in too many of these vaccine cases. People have been winning here and there for various reasons, like if they have a, a, a provision that, okay, we will not give any religious exemptions. That is contrary to the statute, which requires individualized determinations in each case. But the bottom line is you get your individualized determination. And unless you're a remote worker who's you know, 100% remote, who doesn't want to get vaccinated, you're probably going to lose that, lose that case. Right. You see, but I, I would argue that, that the reverse, that given the way we're going, that Title VII, this is a, a, an interesting opportunity to expand the uh, reach and severity of the, the strictures of Title VII in a religious context. The idea being that, and again, applying neutrality principles, you cannot treat a religious exemption different than a physical or, um, or mental or other disability. Where the statutory language is exactly the same. <laughs> That's right, and, and so we'll see, we'll see how that works out, but I think that that area is ripe for substantially more and, and surprising litigation that is in terms of where it's going. And again, it's the same thing. 15 years ago, we never in our lives thought, I certainly didn't think that we would wind up here uh, in, in this jurisprudential space, but I think uh, this is just a small note and we're gonna be going uh, much farther and uh, religion is going to be a much, much more privileged um, uh, area for dissenting from any kind of, uh, of uh, governmental mandate uh, and accommodation is going to be a, a thinner uh, read on which to write. That's a bad metaphor. Uh, it's, now I'm thinking of the, the pigs in their house of straw uh, as opposed to a house of concrete. You're not going to be able to, to withstand that, I think, for very 
much longer given the, the, the way the court appears to be moving. But yeah, beyond that, in, in this case, so how do you think the, uh, the mandates case is gonna go? We'll end with this and then it, we open it up. Bottom oh, line, which is case? Yeah, which way do you think the court's gonna go? This this court definitely oh, has, has a thumb on its scale. I think they'll say that given the ninety nine percent, they're going to, and given well, it's changed a little, right? So my views have evolved a little because I'm triple vaxxed, but I still got the got the darn disease back in December, right? So it's not as effective as we thought. I was thrilled to get the vaccine way back. And, you know, I was one of these people calling up, trying to find where I could get my vaccine, and then oh, 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 God. you know, uh, it's not as good as we thought it would be. And then the disease has toned down a little since the first spring when people were getting you know a lot of really strange and severe side effects to those are a lot less and so you know I, I think the court may very well say no you know 99 percent um you don't have a compelling interest so what's your thought i think that the court is going to be really conflicted um on the one hand if they ex if they effectively obliterate goldman under rifra uh, they are going against their notion of significant uh, deference to the military at a time when the military and military discipline becomes a critically important component of the fundamental purpose of the state, which is to protect people, you know, irrespective of, of your, your political persuasion. And so even if we have, quote unquote, right-leaning uh, justices, that has got to weigh heavily on them and the idea of overturning Goldman and leaving the military ripe for these kind of lawsuits may act as a break. On the other hand, the political project, right, of completely moving away from Everson makes this a really good case for furthering that. And so they're gonna be completely conflicted. I think it is for, for purposes of expanding uh, the, uh, the scope of free exercise uh, from that perspective, this couldn't have been a worse case to, to bring before the court. It would have been much better to have brought in a case involving uh, some kind of uh, non-governmental uh, agency or business or something like that, then they could have just gone. But the military is going to be tough. And so my gut tells me that we're going to have a, uh, uh, not a majority opinion, we're going to have an opinion for the court. We will have a majority uh, concurring in the judgment. And then we are likely to have at least two, if not three opinions uh, among the concurrences over an extremely strong dissent if not more than one, probably two. So this is a case when it comes down, I think. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, then uh, it's going to get us nowhere. And uh, all this is going to do is refine everyone's argument for the next case where the military is at. Uh, That's probably a good read. <laughs> yeah. Questions? Talking a bit about uh, passing value judgments on uh, on different and the sincerity. Point of clarity, sort of of the outer bounds of what what you can claim. When does it become so far fetched that that where the court any court is just going to say no, that that's not not sincere, not that's not legitimate. So, so the value judgments by the government, or are you talking about the yeah, or, or the courts rather. Um, yeah, the one that, that, that I cited in the case was when you had um, 
the social justice protests in 2020 uh, over uh, you know, treatment of African-Americans by police, you had you know, gatherings that people were worrying some people because of COVID and the state of Washington, actually the Department of Health issued a thing saying, well, racism is really a public health issue. So that's different from, you know, from, from, you know so we're going to make an exception there, but we can't make an exception for, for religion. Once you go down that slope of saying, Ah, uh, this is public health. Well, religion is public health, right? People are healthy and happy, and you know their families are intact. That's health, you know. So I think once you start going down that that slope, you you're you're getting into very so so, so it's, it's important for public health officials to focus on on public health. Um, right, and all I can think of is the 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 case of Sumum. Remember our our Sumum friends. Um, it is once you go down the road of testing sincerity, you have obliterated neutrality and you have um, one way or another and actually through the back door, uh, privilege the majority religions, which is precisely the reason why we went away from the standard in the first place. The minute you start questioning, however bizarre you may think that individual's sense of belief and its expression is, the minute you start thinking in that way, you already know that the sincerity problem is not that person, it's yours. Uh, and courts have been very shy about that. But if we mean what we say, and we mean for neutrality among religions, and if we mean what we say, that religion is an individual relationship with whatever it is that that person has a relationship with, the minute you start judging that, um, you've got a problem. Now, having said that, I guarantee you that a majority of the judiciary is gonna do just that, and they will find ways to do it. One of the ways to do it uh, was, was you, you framed it really, really nicely to say, well, we don't really have to deal with sincerity at all. What we're going to do is recast this not as an issue of religion, but as an issue of autonomy, or as an issue in this going back to the Welsh cases, as an issue of ethics. Um, of course, one argues that one of the core components of religion is not just cosmology and theology, but it's ethics and morals as well. Uh, and you can't do this with the judge who will say, well, yeah, but you don't have all of that. And then one argues, well, you don't have all of that because your, your yardstick is itself biased because your yardstick is either an Abrahamic religion or some other major religion. And what makes you think that that ought to be the, the yardstick with respect to which you're either going to gauge sincerity or you're going to decide on the type, the taxonomy of the belief as religious or quote unquote ethical or autonomy related. And so which is why I'm extremely nervous when you start uh, doing uh, sincerity judgments. And I think you, you really have two choices. There, this is a very simple thing. You're either going to avoid it and the government is going to have to prove that it's a sham. And we do that in a lot of areas of law. Or you're going to have to fess up that you don't mean neutrality. You mean privileging of a class of religious beliefs and a deprivileging and marginalizing of other religions. And now we're back to 1870 and we might as well resurrect Reynolds. Yes. Should be the standard to decide whether a specific group can have its 
exemption, like our medical exemption versus religious exemption, and like and also what should be the standard for deciding uh, whether specific religion, religious group could have like different um, degree of exemption. Well, Don't I mean think, to interrupt, we probably have like a minute. Yeah, no, the, the touchstone is neutrality. It's, are you treating different religions equally? Are you being neutral as among religions? And are you being neutral between secular, good secular reasons and good religious reasons? You know, uh, or I would say good, because we don't want to judge good, but you know, something, a, a secular reason that would, 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 would be weighty enough to get an exemption and a religious reason that's weighty enough to, to get a, a uh, exemption. So it's a question of neutrality. Right. And, and I'll just add one thing, and I think this, this will also get to the other part of your question. Originally, the state could be viewed as having absolutely no obligation to grant any ex exemptions at all. So the state can say, too bad, sorry, uh, it's between you and your God, you and your body, uh, and whatever. We don't care, right? And they're treating everyone the same. The question that has come up now with greater and greater force over the last 20 years is, are there categories of conditions or modes of existence that require the state to differentiate them from everyone else? Before 20 years ago, the answer would have been clearer. The state can decide, no, you're all the same, we don't care. The big issue now is whether, if the state really wants to do this, do they have the authority to do that anymore? And that will turn on the development of constitutional issues of autonomy and personal preservation and the, the way in which we interpret the scope and extent of constitutional protections for religion. And that is a work in progress now. Um, it, the area is so dynamic, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you where it's gonna wind up, but that's, that's what's at play. Give a round of applause for our We'll be eating some pizza and sticking around out there. Yes, sir. Yes. Thank, thank you all, all right, for yeah. coming. Uh, pizza will be out in the lobby area there. So right. thank you guys.